You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and other guests discuss primary care issues that are on their minds and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome. Joining me is Dr. Selena Magoni, who's an attending neonatologist in the CHOP Newborn Care Network at Einstein Medical Center, Montgomery. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Magoni. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. So I thought I'd start us off with a little bit of an introduction. Many of us are aware of the ongoing opioid epidemic in the United States. A somewhat hidden public health emergency rising from the opioid epidemic is the rising rate of neonatal abstinence syndrome, or NAS, and neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, or NOWS. Between 1999 and 2014, there was a 333% increase in opioid use disorder in pregnant women which is translated to a 433% increase in NAS nationally in 10 years, from 2004 to 2014, among all insurance payers. Furthermore, there are disparities here in that NAS is seven times greater in infants covered by Medicaid versus private insurance as of 2014. As pediatricians, we know that infants born with NAS are at risk for low birth weight, respiratory difficulties, feeding difficulties, seizures, and disruption of infant caregiver attachment. In the context of this epidemic and these disparities, CHOP has published a clinical pathway for the evaluation and treatment of NAS and NOWS. This pathway guides providers through a number of clinical practice guidelines and management approaches that are relatively new in treating these patients, and here to discuss how these inpatient changes impact discharge and outpatient care is Dr. Magoni. So let's get started by talking about what is new in the management of patients with NAS and NOWS that may surprise us. So historically, we have managed these babies using a scoring tool called Finnegan. And that was a somewhat complicated scoring tool that would evaluate infants based on any number of things, including temperature, respiratory rate, but also modeling, tone, sneezing, And any baby who scored three eights was the magic number would require transfer to the NICU and would be started on scheduled morphine for withdrawal. These babies, once they were admitted, we knew based on the way that they would be weaning, they would be with us in the NICU for weeks and many of them for a month or two. Over the past couple of years, there has been a reevaluation in the way that we manage these babies as an inpatient. And there has been a much larger focus on the AAP's recommendation for making non-pharmacologic management the true first line of care. And with that, there has also been a conversion to a different scoring system that is commonly referred to as ESC or Eat Sleep Console. This actually just looks at the baby's ability to be a baby. And so the while the infants are still observed for five days as an inpatient after birth to make sure that there are no signs of withdrawal that need pharmacologic treatment in addition to all of the improved non-pharmacologic support they're receiving. 
they are scored on a much simpler scale on their ability to eat appropriate volumes for breastfeeding or formula feeding newborns to sleep for at least an hour as opposed to being able to sleep for three continuous hours. Because I don't know about you, but my children never did that. (laughs) And to be able to be consoled and giving them the ability to fuss a little, to cry a little. But after 10 minutes of of interventions and support that you would expect them to be able to calm down. Similarly, I think all of us who have children or have taken care of them know babies get fussy sometimes and that's just part of what they do. And so this new scoring system has allowed infants to be babies. And a lot of what's come out of that is that now many fewer infants are requiring scheduled morphine. The other change in the scoring tool is that now babies are allowed to get PRN doses. So if this baby is having withdrawal and is having a really bad day, you can give up to four PRN doses of morphine without having to put them on scheduled medication. And all of that comes together to have these babies home with their moms a lot sooner. That's amazing. And this eat sleep console scoring system sounds like a really great approach to non-pharmacologic management as the first line for these babies. Now, when you do need pharmacologic management, what does that look like in practice in the NICU? You mentioned morphine and you mentioned PRNs. I just want to know what outpatient providers should know about infants who may need pharmacologic management and are weaning off of those medications when we see them in the outpatient setting. When I first started in residency, we actually were sending babies home on medication. And I was, was a first-year resident managing tincture of opium in my outpatient clinic. And that went away quite a few years ago mm. and became solely inpatient management. Wow. And as I said, once you started on a scheduled morphine dose, you were required to wean the baby 10% once a day, which essentially, if the baby was started on scheduled morphine, would be at a minimum at least two weeks of inpatient management, care, and around-the-clock morphine. And with this new scoring tool, the babies can actually just get one or two doses. And then if that seems to be enough to get them over the, quote, hump, then they are monitored after their last dose of morphine for at least 48 hours or for at least five days after birth, whichever one is longer before they're sent home. And what this translates to is moms who used to have the support of the hospital for weeks to months to get to know their baby, to learn their baby's cues, to have that support there, they're going home with these infants a lot sooner. It also means these babies who were in the hospital and were able to get linked into physical therapy or occupational therapy services are also going home a lot sooner. And many of them aren't getting those initial inpatient consults that they used to get. What we are trying to do to sort of help offset that is to keep the mother and the infant together as a dyad. And each hospital is focusing on different ways to do that, either to find new spaces within the inpatient unit to allow them to nest together, to room together. The moms are encouraged to be there at the bedside and to do all hands-on cares for these babies. They're also encouraged to feed on demand, which is much more what we would expect from a regular quote, term healthy baby, is when they're hungry, you feed them. And so we're teaching these parents a very different way and a different approach to caring for their infants. 
just a couple years ago, the moms would come in to see their infants and we would say, no, they can't be disturbed. They're on Q3 cares and it's they're only an hour into their care. Please don't touch them. Please don't bother them. And now the mom is encouraged to be there at the bedside and to really take ownership of her baby. And so we're trying to balance the fact that they are not in the hospital for as long and they don't have the length of time to do the education and to get involved in the physical therapy and occupational therapy services with the fact that we're encouraging them to spend as much time as possible with their infant and teaching them swaddling, teaching them the importance of skin-to-skin time, of white noise, of wrapping the babies in a softer blanket, in keeping the room slightly darker and cooler because these babies tend to run a little warm, and explaining to them that all of the signs of withdrawal are not going to be gone when the baby leaves the hospital. These babies tend to go home. They tend to be a little fussier than you would classically expect. They tend to have some degree of hypertonia much more than you would expect in a normal term baby. And so we understand that these signs of withdrawal are going to last and they're going to last for months and they're not a reason to keep the baby in the hospital. But I do think it will likely affect the way that they're managed as an outpatient. Thank you for that great review of all of the things that parents are receiving education on because it's helpful for us to know when we see them in the outpatient setting. You discussed how these practice changes have significantly changed the length of stay. And we know that the mean length of a hospital stay for a term infant is typically about two to three days, depending on the birth, whereas infants with NAS historically had been closer to 16 or 17 days. How long would you say their length of stay is with the practice changes that you're following now? I think that is a great question that is dependent on the hospital system and where they are in moving towards Eat, Sleep, Console. I can tell you from the data that we have for the network, our mean length of stay has now dropped for all babies affected by NAS to seven days. So that doesn't, there are some hospitals who are still in the process of data collection. So it's not a inclusive total number, but of the five or six hospitals who have been able to enter data, the ones who haven't entered but have submitted their numbers to me, our average length of stay for infants affected is seven days. That's amazing. And you talked about the education that you're giving to parents about how to care for infants after discharge since the shorter length of stay in the hospital means that they need to learn how to manage some of these symptoms that previously might have been handled in the NICU. As primary care pediatricians and providers, what would you like us to know and be aware of in caring for these patients after they're discharged? So I think that The first thing is that we wanted to approach this change in care of babies from a three-pronged aspect and starting with antenatal education of these moms, getting them in and letting them know how the care of their infant was going to change and helping them find some support even before the baby was born. So there's been a focus on antenatal education and outreach. And then the way that we change our hospital in patient management. And then our third focus is really How do we reach out to the pediatricians and how do we make sure that even after the babies go home that they're still okay? And I think that some of this is just getting to talk to you and making sure that everyone knows that the way that we're managing these moms and babies is changing as early as when she's diagnosed 
when she enters a treatment program, when she is found to be pregnant. And there are a lot of community-based organizations that can help support these moms. And I think that I can speculate about what would be helpful for all of the pediatricians. I think knowing that these babies may have some hypertonia, that they may be a little bit more irritable, that these moms may need some extra support, that they may need some extra lactation support, and that knowing the services within your area that you can refer them to, early intervention, physical therapy, lactation, just because I think these moms are used to getting all of that in the inpatient setting, and now they're going to be home. Mm -hmm. And so trying to figure out the best way to provide a network of support for these mothers and babies after they're discharged, since they're going home so much sooner. Mm -hmm. Those are great points for us to keep in mind. I would also strongly encourage communication between the outpatient pediatricians and the hospitals that have a well baby unit. When we send our babies home from the NICU, I am pretty sure that most NICUs call the pediatrician's office to say, hey, we're sending our baby home, has been in the NICU for a month or two months now. We just wanted to give you a heads up and do that verbal transfer of care and communication about their patients. But that generally does not happen in the well baby setting. And so I would encourage any pediatricians who have questions or concerns to reach out to the hospitals within their community with any questions that they have. Because I know of the CHOP care networks, every one of the hospitals that are involved in this transition and the way that we care for the babies would be happy to answer questions about the change in practice and expectations that we have for the babies once they're home. Great. We love communication from our inpatient colleagues. So that's a that's a great point. Now, this feels a little bit like a board review question, but you mentioned lactation and we want to support moms who would like to breastfeed. So can you remind us which substances and related diagnoses are safe for breastfeeding and which are contraindicated? So we encourage breastfeeding in moms who are in a treatment program and they can be receiving methadone, they can be receiving buprenorphine or Subutex, Suboxone, and it is perfectly safe for her to breastfeed while she's in a treatment program. We do not encourage breastfeeding if the mother is using illicit substances and then obviously with medical diagnoses that are contraindicated like HIV. Mothers that are hep C positive also can breastfeed. And I think most of us probably know these things, but part of this inpatient pathway has some outpatient resources. And one of the things that it does have is a breastfeeding traffic light. And that lists everything in green is great, go, and safe to breastfeed. And yellow, we just have a conversation with the moms about the risks and benefits of breastfeeding versus continuing the substance. And then there is a red part of the light where those substances are definitely contraindicated. And so that traffic light is a PDF and it's downloadable. And so it, I think, can also be used in the outpatient world if there's ever a question. And then the other resources are all of the support for lactation. And I would expect that most pediatricians' offices probably have a go-to where they refer people. But if there's ever a question about things, the number for the infant risk line is there. And so you can always call and double check whether something is safe or not. Great. 
And also another thing that comes up in discharging a patient is safety planning. And so can you talk about how you plan for safety after patients are discharged and how you're making those decisions so that we know when CYS or other social services may be involved and when they might not be? There has been a push through the state to really focus on these babies. The Pennsylvania has a perinatal quality collaborative, which is open to pediatricians, neonatologists, community-based organizations, insurance companies, nursing. Um, it is really a phenomenal organization that is trying to help care for both the moms with opioid use disorder and infants who are affected by uh, withdrawal. And so... Part of that is a move towards developing a plan of safe care, which is different than a safety plan. A safety plan is developed after the babies are born in conjunction with CYS about how to get the babies home with a parent or a grandparent. A plan of safe care is supposed to be something that is started well before the baby is delivered. So the goal would be to have a medical provider identify the mother's who are at risk for having infants affected by withdrawal, either the OBs or sometimes it's actually by the NEOs when the moms have been referred for a prenatal consult. And then the mother would, once she's identified, meet with social work and they would develop a true plan of safe care that's expected to last for the first year after the baby's born in terms of support and help that she can get during the pregnancy during and around delivery, and then after the baby is home. And these include things like early intervention, nurse-family partnership, trying to make sure that there's physical uh, occupational therapy referrals as an outpatient if needed. Sometimes there's a need for a referral to a neurodevelopmental clinic and more specialized clinics. And then there's a lot of community-based organizations that the social worker can sort of help refer the mom to based on what her needs are and based on what her family and outpatient support is with the goal being that these mothers will feel empowered to be able to take care of their infants and know that on the days where they're struggling, they have the support and help that they need. The model in other states is actually that the plan of safe care has become so ingrained that once the babies are born, they bypass CYS altogether. And it's just a notification that says this baby was born and the plan of safe care that was developed several months ago is now going into effect. And so while Pennsylvania is a very large state and is not at that point yet, I think we all see that it's happened in other states and our hope is that we can really strengthen our ability to talk to these moms and get them the support they need antenatally so that once they go home and they have their support system sort of laid out. And I would say probably knowing their pediatrician's office and knowing who they were going to see and feeling comfortable about being able to meet with them is certainly going to be part of that. I love that shift to a more proactive approach and really in line with the preventative medicine approach that we use in pediatrics. So that's that's great that you guys are really flipping the script here. You see sometimes Mothers, they really want to do the best thing for their babies and it just can feel really overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And so our hope is that by trying to hook them into some of these community-based organizations early, it will help them. And I think it's useful for outpatient pediatricians 
to know that they exist and to know that the mom may already have been involved in them and to really sort of support and encourage that continuation. Now, you mentioned ongoing developmental monitoring and how important that is in these patients. Looking at long-term outcomes, what should we be considering to help these infants meet their developmental potential? So I think one of the ways that we can help monitor for the baby's ability to grow and develop normally is by early referrals to early intervention. And I think if there's any concern, early referrals to physical therapy or occupational therapy as an outpatient. I also think that trying to encourage these moms to get to their well-child visits is really important. I know in an inpatient setting, some of these moms have problems with transportation. And for us, we provide transportation vouchers if they do require scheduled medicine and stay in the NICU for longer in an effort to be able to try to overcome some of the hurdles these moms have to be there with their infants. And so I think just being flexible in terms of rescheduling these moms, because I do think that getting these babies in for regular well visits is pretty critical. Right. We can't do the developmental monitoring if we're not seeing them to monitor them. So that's important. Access is important. Yes. Now, your new clinical pathway has a wealth of information on it, including much of what we talked about in this podcast episode. And although the pathway is really geared toward inpatient care, I think there's a lot there for outpatient providers to learn from. So can you just highlight some of the resources that you see there that are helpful for primary care? The main page of the pathway, it really is a flow diagram of what we're doing. And I think on the right-hand side, there are a list of quick links to resources, and some of those involve lactation support. It will link you to the American Academy of Pediatrics page that references neonatal abstinence syndrome. It also will link you to the Perinatal Quality Collaborative main page, which, again, I think is an excellent resource for community pediatricians to also be aware of and, if possible, become involved in. And at the end, it does also reference the need that there are a significant amount of these mothers that are hep C positive and the need for these babies to get the appropriate outpatient follow-up with ID after delivery also. Great. Thank you so much. This pathway is really helpful to both inpatient and outpatient providers. And as you mentioned, there are many different links that we can utilize there. Thank you so much for taking the time to refresh our memory about NAS and teach us about NOWS, which are things that some of us may not have thought much about since residency, and just calling attention to the fact that we may be caring for patients affected by these disorders in our clinics much earlier than we historically are used to seeing. So we appreciate that you are letting us know about this important change in practice that has great benefits for both caregivers and babies. Thank you very much, Dr. Lockwood, for having me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcast for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.